Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those are the words contained in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And I think it's fair to say that no other words in the Constitution have produced more constant and heated debate here in America. Today, there are more than, there are more than 350 million guns in America. That's more than the number of people in America. And mass shootings are so common now that we risk becoming desensitized to the kind of horrific violence we see in all of our communities. There are a lot of people who think the Second Amendment is fueling that violence and that maybe we ought to reconsider those words. There are other people who staunchly defend the amendment as a central freedom in a free republic. But my next guest wants to have a really different conversation about the Second Amendment and about guns in America, one that she says we often forget when we debate gun control and the right to bear arms that's spelled out in the Constitution. Dr. Carol Anderson says the right to bear arms only exists for some people in the United States. She says not only are black and brown Americans ignored by supporters of the Second Amendment. She says the Constitution and our legal system explicitly exclude African Americans from the protections afforded by the Second Amendment. Anderson is the author of the new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, and she joins us now to talk about it. Carol Anderson, welcome back to Detroit Today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So first, I want to ask you about the use of one of the words in the title of your book. It says, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Talk about what you mean when you say uh, it is fatally unequal. Uh, I mean it literally as well as figuratively. Um, literally in terms of the numbers of African-Americans who are gunned down um, and figuratively in terms of the damage that it has done to American democracy. Having this right sitting in the Bill of Rights that is so antithetical to African-Americans' basic rights. And when when you use that word, that fatal word, I think for some people that means irreversible. It means uncorrectable. Is that what you're saying? That we cannot fix the things that are broken about the Second Amendment and inequality in America? Um, The Second Amendment, I I really argue, um, is not fixable, but America is. (laughs) Um, It means we've got to do some work. We've got to put in the hard work in order to, to to correct the imbalances, to correct the inequalities. But the Second Amendment is not fixable because its very genesis, 
was designed to to contain and to control and to deny black people their rights. So you start the book by talking about the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, which happened just one day apart in July of 2016. Uh, what do these two deaths tell us about the way the Second Amendment applies differently for African Americans uh, than it does for other people? And of course, we need to probably remind listeners of who Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were. That is now five years ago. So let's start there. So Alton Sterling was a black man who was sitting outside a convenience store selling CDs and DVDs. And that's what the owner of the convenience store liked. Um, there was a crank call into 911 saying that there was a man at the store uh, threatening people with a gun. The police rolled up. They saw Alton Sterling sitting there. Um, they grabbed him, uh, threw him on the ground. They felt that he had a gun in his pocket. Now, he had a gun in his pocket because he had been robbed before. And they've got him on the ground. They've got him pinned down. And they feel the gun. And they start shooting. And they killed him. Just killed him. Mm -hmm. Philando Castile was a black man in Minnesota. Alton Sterling was in Louisiana. Philando Castile is in Minnesota. He is pulled over by the police. Um, and Philando Castile, the police officer asked for his ID. Philando Castile, following NRA guidelines, alerts the police officer that he has a license to carry weapon with him. He is now reaching for his ID. The police officer hears weapon and starts shooting and kills Philando Castile. And we have the, 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 the video image of his death um, that, that's played that played across the the internet i you know i called it i said it was like a snuff film and with his death so we've got philando castile who was killed simply because he has a gun and the nra went virtually silent mm -hmm. virtually silent um, because this man is gunned down for merely having a gun not threatening anybody not brandishing it merely owning a licensed weapon and this is the same NRA that had gone ballistic, pun intended, um, when uh, at, the, at, at Ruby Ridge and at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, calling federal authorities, federal law enforcement, jackbooted government thugs that uh, would, would kill law-abiding citizens. And at Ruby Ridge and at Waco, those folks who were white, had shot at federal officers and killed them. But the NRA says Jack booted government thugs, but goes virtually silent on Philando Castile. Um, and, and, and journalists began asking, don't black people have second amendment rights? Mm. And I thought, wow, that is a great question. Mm. And that got me on this hunt. So, so let's go back to the very beginning of this discussion, uh, you know, the, the Constitutional Convention uh, of, of 1789 or 87 uh, produces a constitution uh, that 
that uh, the new American uh, population is pretty skeptical of. It, it, it endows the government with an awful lot of power. It centralizes government uh, in, in a federal sense in a way that makes people really nervous. Uh, and so most states are saying, hmm, we're not really gonna, we're not really gonna ratify that. And so as uh, a remedy, to that, uh, a few people who were involved in, in, in crafting the Constitution come up with uh, what they call the Bill of Rights, which they say is uh, a countermeasure to the incredible power that uh, the federal government is in, in, endowed by in the, the seven articles uh, of, of the Constitution. Um, uh, one of those is the right to bear arms. It is uh, the protection of uh, having arms uh, in your home, keep and bear arms. Uh, what is it that they're thinking of there that does not apply to African Americans? Now, of course, African Americans are not considered citizens in this process. Uh, we're considered property. Uh, and even for counting purposes in the Constitution, we're not considered full people. We're considered three-fifths. Uh, of a per, uh, of a person for, uh, for 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 the counting of of citizens uh, toward congressional representation and other things, but but what else about what they're doing uh, sets us up to exclude black people from this critical protection? And it is in the word militia. Militia is the key word there. Today we think of the militia as. Um, these, this bulwark against a foreign invasion, that there, we swaddle it in the flag that these were the folks who took on the British um, and, and won America's freedom. And we think of it in terms of uh, a, um, a, a, a block against domestic tyranny. But what was going on at the time was that in the war for independence, the militia was not reliable. Um, sometimes they would show up, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes when they would show up, then they would run away. Um, it was driving George Washington crazy. He just, he was like, oh. Um, and, and so the militia as this, this fighting force against a, a professional army was, had proven to be unreliable and that you could not count on them. In terms of domestic tyranny, in Massachusetts, right before the Constitutional Convention, there was a Shays Rebellion, which were a group of, of white farmers who were angry at the government for taxation policies, its taxation policies, and the seizure of property because of the non-payment of taxes. So they attacked the Massachusetts government. And the militia that the government was calling in would not stop Shays' Rebellion. In fact, you had militias joining Shays' Rebellion. And so Boston merchants had to hire a mercenary army to put down Shays' Rebellion. So that thing about domestic tyranny, mm, not so much. What the militia did do really well consistently was to put down slave revolts put down the, the, the quest for freedom of enslaved people who were fighting for that freedom 
who would take on um, up against enormous odds, a quest to be free, a quest to have their rights, their humanity recognized. You had um, uprising after uprising after uprising and what the South had was the militias that put down those uprisings. And so in the, the ratification conventions, the state ratification conventions, particularly the one in Virginia, um, Patrick Henry and George Mason were going toe to toe against James Madison mm-hmm. uh, because in the, the draft constitution, there was language in there that put control of the militia under the federal government. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Patrick Henry and George Mason were like, no, absolutely not. We cannot trust the federal government. It's got folks in there like from Pennsylvania <laughs> and from like Massachusetts. And we know that the North detest slavery. We cannot count on them to come and send the militia when there is a slave uprising. We will be left defenseless. And, and in that battle of we will be left defenseless came the, the quest for Mason started talking about a bill of rights. We have to have a bill of rights. And Madison, who hadn't even really thought about it, thought, okay, fine. Because what he knew was that the South can play some serious hardball with the formation and the the solidity of the United States of America. The South had already proven that during the Constitutional Convention where they get the three-fifths clause, where they get the 20-year extension on the Atlantic slave trade, and where they get the fugitive slave clause. Because with each one of those, they had threatened to bolt. They had threatened to not participate in the formation of the United States of America unless they got protection for slavery. And so when Patrick Henry and George Mason are threatening that if we don't have protection for slavery, if we are going to not be left defenseless. We must have a Bill of Rights or we will have a new constitutional convention. And that threat just shook James Madison something fierce. Mm-hmm. Because what he was afraid of was that a new constitutional convention would undo all of the work he had done to to create this constitution because the original Articles of Confederation with a very weak central government had made the U.S. a laughingstock globally. Um, Each state was printing its own currency. They had tariffs against each other, state to state. I mean, they had their own foreign policy. Things were unworkable. He was afraid of reverting back to that with a new constitutional convention. And so this Bill of Rights became absolutely essential for that. And and this is why you get this this really weird outlier in the Bill of Rights. You know, we have the right to freedom of the press, uh, freedom of assembly, uh, no state-sponsored religion. You've got the right not to be illegally searched and seized. You've got the right to a speedy and fair trial, the right to not have a cruel and unusual punishment. But then you've got this, the right to a well-regulated militia for the security of the state. Mm-hmm. That outlier, that outlier was the bribe to the South 
to Virginia to not have a new constitutional convention. And that bribe, that militia in there was about controlling black people, ensuring that black people did not have their rights. Okay, uh, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Carol Anderson, who is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of a new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We're talking about the history of gun rights in America and the way in which they have been applied unequally from the beginning. They have not protected African-Americans the way that they protect other Americans. We'd love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what role you think the Second Amendment plays in American society. What do you think of Dr. Carol Anderson's assertion that black and brown people are excluded from the protections laid out in the Second Amendment? Do you think people of color have a realistic expectation that they're free to carry guns and protect ourselves the same way that white Americans can? And what do you think we can do to address some of these issues? Do you think the Second Amendment should be changed? Do you think we need to have another kind of constitutional convention in which we debate all of these things, uh, these foundational rules and structures that guide American life? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and uh, you can. Uh, we will try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, we've already got a social media question for you, uh, Dr. Anderson. Um, Dr. Liat Gidlow, who is a professor here at Wayne State uh, University. Um, wants you to tell the story about Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party's armed visit to the California State House in yes. 1967. Um, yes. This was a, a, a pivotal moment, I think, in the thinking about gun rights and, and who they protect in this country. Mm-hmm. So the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was a response to the massive Uh, police brutality raining down on the black community in Oakland. And and there was no accountability for the cops. Um, They could beat up folks, they could kill black folk, and there was nothing that stopped them, no legal structure that stopped them. So the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense arose as, as a means to police the police. And UEP Newton and Bobby Seale were the co founders of the Black Panther Party and they knew the law. Huey was a law school student, knew California law, and so knew about, you had the right to open carry in California. And so they would carry their guns and police the police. They knew how far away the distance they had to keep from a police officer arresting somebody. Um, They knew the kinds of weapons they could carry. They knew how to not aim them at anybody. They knew all of the parameters about legally openly carrying weapons. The police did not like this at all, at all. And so the Oakland Police Department ran to uh, Assemblyman Don Mulford and said, we need help. These Black Panthers, 
they're a problem. And so Mulford crafted the Mulford Act with the help of the NRA. And the Mulford Act banned open carry. So as the, 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 the bill is going through the California legislature, Huey Newton is like, you know, this is, they're, they're, this is aimed at us. And so he um, sent Bobby Seale and a group of Black Panthers to the California legislature armed, to, to openly armed to, to protest this bill that was coming through the California legislature. Um, newsmen see these, these Black people coming out in this leather with the berets, with the guns, and they're like, ooh, story. And they turn their cameras to the Black Panthers. And this becomes the first visual image, real visual image that goes across the nation of this, this group um, that does not look visually like Martin Luther King. And, and they go into the, 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 the Capitol building and the, the cameras are, are, are leading the way really. And the cameras come into the assembly room and, and where the legislators are and the Black Panthers follow the cameras. And the assemblymen really didn't know that it was the Panthers. They just saw the cameras and they went, ah, oh, cameras, but get out of here. But after that, it became the invasion. The Black Panthers invaded the legislative assembly. And that led the Mulford Act to just ratchet up, to, to move from misdemeanors to felonies and to craft this image of these dangerous black people um, who, needed, who needed to be controlled. And so here you have um, a conservative assemblyman drafting a law, a gun control law with the help of the NRA and eagerly signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. And although Don Mulford said, no, this, this, this bill isn't targeted at any racial group, you know, this is about the Klan as well. But the Klan in California did not openly carry weapons. This was the mechanism that the Panthers used to police the police. Mm -hmm. And it was designed to make that method illegal because the cops would pull over the Panthers prior to this time, the cops would pull over the Panthers and they couldn't get them on anything because the way that they were carrying the weapons and the types of weapons that they had, they were all licensed and they were all legal. There were no sawed off shotguns. And they were, they were, they were like, everything they do is legal. How do we make them illegal? And that's what the Mulford Act was designed to do. Yeah. Okay, we are gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna continue this really provocative conversation with Dr. Carol Anderson about her new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We will get to your calls and social media comments as well. Ed in Detroit, Sam and Mount Clements will hear from you next. If you want to join them, give us a call and tell us what you think about race and the Second Amendment. Do gun rights in America apply to people of color? Should they? And how would we fix that? If we wanted to, 313-577-1019, as always, is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Dr. Carol Anderson. She's a professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author of a really provocative new book. It's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. It takes a look at the history of black Americans' exclusion from the protections provided by the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which protects the right to keep and bear arms. We're talking about what that means in modern America, how that looks in modern America, and whether we might be able to change that, what we might be able to do to make that constitutional provision apply more evenly across the U.S. population. We'd love to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you think about the way that the Second Amendment is enforced and the way it applies? Uh, Do you see examples of unequal application? Do you see it protecting white Americans differently from black and brown Americans? Uh, Also, give us a call and let us know Uh, what you would do to change that? How would you send America in a more equal direction? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the program that way. Let's start with Sam in Mount Clements. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Um. Uh, I, I have to, I'm a white guy. Um, I have to agree with the doctor. I think it is unfair how people of color are treated as far as the second amendment right goes. But I also, I, I, I have guns myself and my whole outlook on it is that is so we can, I don't want to say overthrow the government, but like if, 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 something goes awry we have our protection but i do agree with the doctor um i don't know how you rewrite it or refix it i don't know um but i do believe people of color are not getting equal opportunities mm-hmm. um with that or, or equal rights i don't know yeah. but um i i am a firm believer of the second amendment and it's you know what i mean it's core i guess core value i don't know maybe the doctor can yeah. Sam, uh, Sam, I really appreciate you calling and, and sharing that that perspective. Uh, uh, Carol, in the book, you write, uh, to be clear, you, you say this is not a pro-gun or anti-gun book. Guns are not the key variable here. It's black people, their legal status, enslaved, mm-hmm. free black, denizen, Jim Crow citizen or citizen of post-racial America did not change the way the Second Amendment worked against their rights. So I guess the question, and and Sam's point raises this, is is there a meeting point between this conversation about race and guns, and I guess the bigger conversation about the proliferation of guns in uh, America? Can this broader gun control debate, uh, you know, where where Sam says, look, I I, want to have guns, and I believe that's a core right, uh, 
um, you know, can that uh, address some of the issues of racial violence and who has the right to, to, to self-defense? I mean, is there a crossover there, I guess, between what Sam's saying and what you're saying? Um, the, the, as I said, the key element, um, I love that passage that you read. Thank you. The key, <laughs> well, you wrote it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the key element here for me is the anti-blackness in American society that defines black people as the default threat, as dangerous, um, as, as, as um, something that is out to undermine, um, that, that challenges the safety of the white community. Um, that was what the militia originally did in, um, it, during slavery. Um, and this is part of what we see moving along. Um, so I, I take us through these episodes. I take us from the 17th century all the way up to the 21st century in this book. And you keep seeing the same pattern. Um, and the, the legal status of African-Americans does not alter that pattern. It is what... Um, led to Kyle Rittenhouse, the young white man, her teenager, um, who crossed state lines and went to Kenosha, Wisconsin mm -hmm. with an illegally acquired AR-15 um, and is greeted by the police during this demonstration uh, that is happening because a black man had been shot in the back by the cops. And, he's, and the cops say, oh, we, we appreciate you being here. You want some water? It's a hot night out. Um, Rittenhouse then goes on to gun down three people, killing two of them, seriously wounding a third. He, after that, he walks towards the police with his hands up as if to surrender, and they go right by him. He's not a threat. Meanwhile, you have Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old child who was playing alone in the park mm. in Cleveland, with a toy gun. Now, granted, it didn't have the orange tip on it to say, hey, this is a toy, but Ohio is an open carry state. And as an open carry state, as long as you're not threatening anyone, you can have a gun openly carrying it. And so he's in this park pavilion by himself and the police roll up and within two seconds, they shoot him down. And they say he was a threat. He was dangerous. That is the imbalance that I'm talking about. We see it playing out over and over and over. And it is the anti-Blackness, that definition of Black as threat, that definition of Black as dangerous, that creates this fatally unequal America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Sam, I really appreciate uh, the call and you you sharing your perspective on all of this. Let's go to Terrence in Detroit. Terrence, what's on your mind? Hey, hey how you doing, Stephen? Good. Glad you got some. You, you may remember me from a while back ago when I called uh, in about new gun laws and I said you can't legislate crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You remember that? I do. Well, again, uh, this is the second reason, and probably the most prolific reason why I don't support any gun new gun laws. Because as we can already see all across the nation, in all the major states with big, big, big multicultural cities, those gun laws are strictly enforced in our communities, Chicago, um, New York, L.A. Detroit is a little different, I think, because I like our police department, and they don't, and I see people open carry all the time here and, it's not, and are not harassed a lot. But I think that's just because we have a black police department, they understand the laws, and they just govern things different here. 
Mm. But the doctor is absolutely correct. I learned everything that she said back in my community college days. She's exactly correct about the Black Panther Party. She's exactly correct about everything she said. I read it 15, 20 years ago, and um, I don't support any, any new gun laws because they will predominantly be enforced on the black community, even in the communities of color, more than any other community. Yeah. So Owning the firearm is a right, not a privilege, and if we keep in state, in state new gun laws, it's going to be a privilege to the rich and the white folks. Yeah. So, so black people, we're not going to have nothing, and they're going to come down on us even harder than they always. So, so Terrence, I don't remember if I asked you the last time we talked about this, uh, about your own uh, gun ownership, and, and if you're not comfortable talking about that, that's cool too. But but I'm curious uh, if you're if you're a gun owner. Yes, I'm definitely a gun owner. Yeah. AR-15, shotgun, couple handguns, all legal, yeah. and I'm a marine. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I'm, I'm a veteran, and I should say that, not an active duty marine. Right. But um, I'm definitely pro 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 two A. I got the shirt to say it, the hat, everything. Yeah, completely pro two A. <laughs> and I love I love to see brothers and anybody out there executing a pro two A right. You know, and I do not because you cannot legislate crazy. I mean, look at California; they they just had 10, 15 more people get shot up. Illegal gun, and they got the strictest gun laws in the nation. And I say again, just like the doctor said, yeah. any new if new gun laws implemented are predominantly going to be enforced in our communities and all the major cities with yeah. the, with, the, with, with, with with us in it that that could compromise people of color the most. Yeah, uh, Terrence, uh, I, I really appreciate the call and and that perspective, uh, uh, Doctor Anderson. This was something I I had on my list to bring up during our conversation, which is. Uh, the the I think unusual amount of love for the Second Amendment that people, black people, have here in the city of Detroit. I mean, I, uh, this is a, a city with a very very high level of gun ownership. Uh, it is a city where if you were to float uh, the kinds of you know, handgun ordinances that they used to talk about in Washington, D.C. or in Chicago uh, before, of course, the Supreme Court made those those kinds of things uh, much more difficult to do. I mean, you'd be run out of town on a rail uh, in Detroit by African-Americans uh, if you if you talked about those kind of things. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to introduce to the conversation about the history of the Second Amendment and its exclusion of African-Americans from protections in a city like Detroit. Uh, it, that looks really different. And, uh, you know, the high gun ownership, the, the enthusiasm that folks like Terrence e- express for the Second Amendment and gun ownership, that's not at all unusual uh, in our city. And I, I, I feel like it's something of, uh, of an outlier in this, in, this, in this discussion, but I really wanted to get you to, to react to that. Um, so the the history of gun control. So one of the first laws that I look at was 1623 uh, in Virginia that banned access to guns and arms um, to the enslaved. Um, as the laws with each slave revolt, with each uprising, the laws became much more stringent. Um, and they also included free blacks till the point where when even after the civil war when the the Andrew Johnson had um provided amnesty to the confederacy leaders 
and those Confederate leaders then took over those state governments, one of the first things they did was to pass the Black Codes. Mm -hmm. And the Black Codes had in there not only the control of Black labor, but also uh, disarming Black people, that Black people were not allowed to have guns. Black folks refused to give up their guns because they believed that that was all that stood between them and the terrorism that the white South was trying to rain down on them. In fact, the carnage was so intense that historian Annette Gordon-Reed called it a slow motion genocide. Mm -hmm. That the, the, this battle over black folks having guns continued. Um, it continued to when we look at the um, Atlanta race riot in 1906, where a white mob is just slaughtering black folk. And then they move into an area called Darktown, uh, where working class black folk lived. And they, they, this was, now we're not gonna have to chase them like quarry um, through the streets of Atlanta. We're just going to, they're gonna be sitting ducks there in their homes and we're going to just kill them. Well, the folks in Darktown were ready and the folks in Darktown had their guns and they shot at that mob and repelled the mob, pushed the mob back. The mob couldn't believe it. Um, they came again, they got repelled again. And so then they decided to go to Brownsville, which was the area of town that had like the black doctors and black professors um, because they thought that they would be easy prey. Well, the folks in Brownsville were ready as well. The problem was is that uh, some whites breached Brownsville and they were actually um, un, uh, what do you call it? Un, unmarked police. They were like plain clothes police. <laughs> um, and the folks thought that these were these, this was the heart of the white mob and they shot at them. A white cop was killed, several others wounded. That led to the governor calling in the National Guard that went after Brownsville something fierce. Now, you notice that in this, with the white mob just slaughtering Black folks, they're not calling in the National Guard to protect the Black community. And in fact, the, the Atlanta police force told the Black community, we can't protect you. And, and the sense was, you can't protect us, we must protect ourselves. Mm. Um, this is what we saw happening um, as well in Elaine, Arkansas. And in Elaine, Arkansas, you had black folks who were sharecroppers who had had their wages stolen from them. They had worked for an entire year and not been paid. And so they decided to organize via a labor union. Well, when the wealthy whites got word of this, they sent a scouting party to break up the organizing meeting. Um, the, the sharecroppers, the black sharecroppers, were afraid. They knew that if whites found out what they were doing, they're like, they will kill us. And so they had sentries stationed outside the meeting house, uh, outside the church where they were meeting. And they saw the scouting party come. And then there was an exchange of gunfire. A white man was killed. Another white man was wounded. Mm. That sent the, so this is self-defense, right? Uh, this, that sent the word though, that black folks are, are insurgents. These are Bolsheviks. These are communists. And they're going to kill all of the whites in Elaine, Arkansas. 
That led to a mob coming in, slaughtering Black folk. Um, and it also led to the U.S. Army being called in. And the Army came in with its machine guns, just fresh from the war in France. And they began machine gunning down all of the Black folks who had been hiding in the cane breaks. Up to 800 were killed in this slaughter. So as Black folks try to defend themselves with their guns, what also becomes clear is the inordinate power of the state to, to, to just uh, eliminate, eviscerate that right to self-defense that is going on. Mm -hmm. and, and so what you, to me, what we're hearing in the Black community is I've got to defend myself. Mm -hmm. um, I've got to defend myself. I have the right to defend myself. And I cannot consistently count on the police to be that thin blue line of defense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about guns and race and history in America. We'll continue with your phone calls and your social media comments. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of the new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We're talking about the history of race and guns in America and the ways in which black Americans, black and brown Americans, are excluded from the protections that the Second Amendment affords. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. What do you think about the way the Second Amendment protects us as Americans. Is it equal? Is it unequal? How would we make it more equal? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter or to Facebook, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Brad in Shelby Township. Brad, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, I don't know. The, uh, the NRA is there to protect everybody's rights. I mean, to own a gun. I don't understand what the problem is. It's just like uh, that fire, fight they had down in Great Town. What they get and confiscate 13, 15 guns? Why they confiscate them? Were they legally owned? And if they confiscated them, did they arrest them? Did they prosecute them? I mean, you know. So, Brad, did you hear us talking about how Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are black men who were legally carrying weapons and were killed by police, and the NRA said nothing, didn't? didn't stand up for them at all well a lot of people die and a lot of people aren't stood up for i mean that's that's just the world hmm. uh-huh okay well brad i mean obviously i disagree and i don't i'm not sure you're you're listening as closely as i might want you to be to, to the conversation i'm having with dr anderson but i do appreciate you listening and i certainly appreciate uh you calling to participate in the uh in the conversation Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning. You know, white people, some of them must be some quivering in their boots people at all moments. I went to 36, 36 district court 
and I had my dental floss with no gun confiscated, couldn't bring earphones in for my iPhone. But my major point was uh, about the Zimmerman case in Florida, where you can't walk down the street eating some Skittles with a hoodie where somebody who is not the police can't demand that you tell them what your business is in their neighborhood mm-hmm. and assault you. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Bernadette, uh, you know, uh, there are so many, so many instances where exactly what you're talking about just sort of stands out as the the distinction between uh, the way that uh, the Second Amendment gets applied uh, to black people and the way that uh, applies to other people. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Eric in Detroit. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Thanks for having me. Sure. Go yeah, ahead. So I wanted to comment on the application of the law when it comes to the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. I feel that uh, obviously for people of color, it's um, applied differently. If uh, An example would be if, if people of color had gone to the state capitol openly carrying assault weapons or even, you know, the D.C. capitol, that enforcement would have been handled much differently. I think that there would have been casualties and uh stiffer sentencing for Mm -hmm. people of color. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think there is an actual issue with the Second Amendment itself. It's just how it's enforced. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Eric, I uh, appreciate that perspective. And you're absolutely right that what we saw on January 6th in Washington uh, was infuriating. uh, if, If you're paying attention to this issue in particular, the idea uh, of a mass of black people descending on the U.S. Capitol, busting out windows and climbing through them uh, without without being shot is 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 unimaginable. I mean, it would never happen in this country. And the fact that it did happen because the faces of the people who were doing it were white um, really illustrates uh, that 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 imbalance that uh, we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Anderson, before we run out of time, I want to give you a chance to talk about solutions to this. Uh, I mean, some people would say that, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree, right? Uh, this this is unequal mm-hmm. from the beginning, and therefore you got to go back to the beginning to correct the injustice. Lots of people also would say, well, good luck doing that, right? It's a, an amendment that has survived the entire balance of time that the country has existed. You're not likely to get rid of it. So, what what should be done? What what are what are things we should be thinking about uh, in terms of changing this dynamic that you point out? Um, I think one of the things is that we've got to remove the Second Amendment from its hallowed ground, um, from where we we have we, this myth has been created around it about this 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 well oiled, well regulated militia. When the folks who wrote the amendment at the time knew that that militia was not effective against a foreign invasion nor against domestic tyranny. Um, That what that militia was about was about uh, controlling uh, the enslaved population um, and putting down slave revolts. So sitting in the middle of the Bill of Rights, we have a right to control Black people. That anomaly, that, uh, that is that anachronism um, has done enormous damage. We need to treat the Second Amendment the way we treat the three-fifths clause, 
Both of them were founded on Black inhumanity. Mm. Um, both of them were founded on denying the rights of Black people and to understand that. And so the other component that we really have got to do the heavy lifting on is to remove the, the anti-Blackness from this society. It's, it's when Black as threat. And so it's, it's how you laid out that insurrection, how we knew that if that had been a group of Black people storming the Capitol on January 6th, we would have had a much higher casualty rate. We know that. Mm -hmm. Why do we know that? I mean, there's something in the society that says we know that. And so we've got to, to begin to do the heavy lifting of dismantling the things that make that, that inequity so apparent, so real, so, um, so much a part of our lives and the ways that we move, the ways that we operate, so that we don't have, for instance, a Trayvon Martin who is a, a teenager just with a bottle of, of iced tea and, and some Skittles being stalked in a community by a grown man with a loaded weapon um, who then has the right to kill this unarmed teenager. Mm -hmm. And we have a society that thuggifies that unarmed teenager because he becomes the threat, not the grown man stalking a child with a nine millimeter. Right, right. Okay, uh, Dr. Carol Anderson, it is always great to talk with you here on the program, but uh, especially grateful that uh, you came to talk about this wonderful new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the recent rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the wake of the recent escalation of violence in Israel and Palestine. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>